Okay, good morning, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to the Daily Energy Markets podcast. It's May the 2nd, Tuesday. I'm delighted today to be joined by Kate Durian, Meath Contributing Editor and Non-Resident Fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, D.C., Amina Bakr, Deputy Bureau Chief at Energy Intelligence, and Max Torres, Managing Partner at Plata Energy. Thanks, everyone, for joining us this morning uh, for a catch-up on the energy markets. Um, Kate, let me start with you, if that's okay. Uh, you know, let's start with a macro sort of picture of oil markets, but in the context of what's happening, you know, in, in the financial markets and the banking markets and how that may be weighing, you know, on, sen- on sort of sentiment predictives, if you like. I mean, a lot of confusion even for the Fed itself at the moment, which has its meeting coming up this week. Not as straightforward a case as it was maybe three months ago, right, in terms of what they should do next. Well, it's all about China, US. Um, Don't forget, it's not just a banking crisis. It's not just that the Chinese growth has been a bit patchy. Um, We're seeing a sort of crackdown in in China on businesses. So growth is being, um, is concentrated in in certain sectors, but not in others. Um, So I think the market is is a bit bearish on Chinese growth uh, projections. On the other hand, you've got sort of consolidation in the banking sector, and I think that's going to continue. We're going to have another interest rate rise, probably, but it's um, it, it's more an issue of, don't forget, we've also got this big issue of the um, debt ceiling in the US. You know, it doesn't, with, with the fractured politics in the US, God knows what's going to happen uh, come June 1, you know, Yellen saying by June 1, mm-hmm. we may you know, we may default. I mean, that's going to have huge implications. So I think the market is obviously very cautious. We're seeing prices sort of not going up to that 80, magic 80 um, per barrel that is supposed to be, that everybody assumes is the floor below which OPEC will act again, or OPEC plus. So I think we're in for a sort of, you know, a very bumpy ride ahead. And uh, I don't think anyone can predict which way it's going to go. Yeah, I mean, it seems, I mean, uh, just to go to you on that, I, you know, it, it feels to me, who just, I just track and watch everything. Uh, it, if, if you're trying to make decisions in this space, it probably is the most difficult time, isn't it? Because the doom and gloom of economic recession hasn't hit yet, really, Europe or the US. I mean, Kate just mentioned China. Yes, the growth story is steady, but not fantastic. But they've just had record IPO numbers in the first quarter superseding any other country. So these these sort of contradictions, if you like, of, of, of positive versus, uh, you know, more wary sentiment. From an OPEC point of view, how do you think they're looking at things now at the beginning of May in terms of their defense of their $80, if you like? I think you've said it right there. It's a very tricky time to be making decisions, whether you're the Fed or you're OPEC. But just from the pattern that we've been seeing with OPEC, they've been taking decisions really on a precautionary measure. Um, the last cut was criticized a lot uh, because the fundamentals didn't really support the cut. But we're seeing uh, the reaction now. And sure, yes, OPEC did not change its forecast on uh, on Chinese demand. There's still an expectation that the second half of the year we're going to see growth. But I feel like officials in the group, they will really uh, believe it when they see it, when it actually happens. And for the time being, we're going to continue seeing this kind of very, very cautious, uh, precautionary actions being taken uh, to, uh, to to manage the, the market situation. 
I mean, some were saying uh, last week uh, when when prices had taken a bit more of a hit. Now we've got, you know, we're seeing Brent now just about hovering below it today. I think this morning, um, but you know, a lot of people were saying, one or two commentators were saying that you know, OPEC may, uh, if things let's say drop down again towards the seventy level uh, for Brent, may actually look to do more voluntary cuts ahead of July. I mean, do you think that's likely, even if we see those prices go that far? Well, we're, uh, I mean, the, the decision they took, the actual voluntary cuts take effect in May. So we'll, uh, we'll understand uh, more on uh, how they implement those cuts, because there are still a lot of question marks, especially around Russia. I mean, Russia announced the, the voluntary 500,000 bar, uh, barrel per day cut, and they didn't go through with it. So we're all waiting to see at the end of May how these voluntary cuts are implemented and what physical impact they have uh, in the market. I just, in terms of sentiment, uh, we're already seeing that they did manage negative sentiment to some degree. Uh, we saw a reversal of short positions uh, in the market. Uh, a lot of uh, positions have switched from short to long. Uh, but uh, in terms of implementation, I think it's just too early to say what will happen. Plus, in addition to that, will they add another uh, voluntary cut or uh, a collective cut among the group? It's uh, it's definitely too, too early to, to decide that, uh, Diala. I guess we'll have a bit more clarity over the next month, as you said. Max Torres, uh, welcome again. Give us just your point of view from on the same sort of sentiment question, if you like. Uh, you know, how, is, is any of the sort of nervousness, let's say, over U.S. debt, as Kate just mentioned, you know, running out of cash perhaps in June is headlined by Janet Yellen yesterday. Is that reverberating at all into the Latin American economies in terms of, 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 their, of, of their sentiment or, or they have much bigger problems? Think about well. Uh, first of all, thank you, Diala, for the invitation. Uh, pleasure to be here again. Uh, to your question, uh, I don't think that has a lot of impact on the on the Latin American uh, scene right now. Uh, they have their own dynamics, their own problems. There's a lot of elections going on. Uh, recently, Brazil, you know, they re-elected uh, Mr. Lula again as as president. Uh, later this year, there are going to be elections in in Argentina. The were elections yesterday in Paraguay. Um, so things, uh, there, there were elections last year in Colombia. So, you know, the, the Latin America uh, in general, the Americas, they have their own dynamics. Um, I don't think that uh, these uh, US uh, uh, issues are affecting too much what's going on in Latin America. Uh, you mentioned Lula, of course, being reelected relatively recently, and he had a little visit to China, didn't he, also, uh, recently. Right. Yes. Give us your take on that in terms of his incentive to do so. Well, you know, we get into the geopolitics of what's going on in Latin America. Um, Latin America has been uh, moving slowly to the left, as you know, and Brazil had this this uh, this bump, you know, into Bolsonaro, who is, uh, you know, uh, a far right or you know a center right uh, uh, was a center right president and um, the elections were really close uh, and, and Lula won and I guess the country is getting ready to move back to the to the left and realign themselves with uh, with China and um, also you know Paraguay yesterday they are having elections and one of the main topics was realignment with China or, or, or not realignment with China so. What I'm seeing is um, 
an increased influence of the Chinese into the uh, Latin American politics. That, that's something really new. Uh, they've been always, always in the background. Now they are openly you know, supporting one candidate or the other. Uh, as you said, Lula went to China and there's gonna be a Chinese delegation coming uh, next week, I think. And they're gonna be signing a lot of treaties and a lot of uh, cooperation uh, agreements. So, so, you know, yes, we are seeing the Chinese now openly, you know, uh, moving into the, uh, the, the political scene into Latin America, which is something new really. And I wonder, we can talk about that later, how might that impact the US's attitude a bit more towards even right. sanctions, for example, right. Venezuela. We'll touch on that. Kate, let's just go back to you talking about China. I mean, we, we said this uncertainty on demand. It had a good Q1. You know, the GDP figures were pretty good. The imports were pretty good, but for different reasons. Um, let's talk a bit about uh, Russian oil. Um, again, China continues to take that at a discount. What's the latest in the market on, you know, a couple of things to do with Russian oil. Amina mentioned it, you know, does anyone believe they're gonna even cut this 500 they pledged a few months ago? Uh, and B, you know, um, flows will not be disrupted this year at all of Russian oil or product by the look of it. Any, anything contrary to that that you see? No, I mean, if you look at the, 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 the data, it's not just the, the crude oil, it's also products, you know, they're flowing right, left and well, they're going Africa, they're going to, they're coming, through the Middle East, through the Gulf, um, you know, and it's mainly India and China as opposed to, you know, other countries that are not taking Russian oil. I think, yeah, that 500 was a bit of noise, but, you know, I think we only saw about half of that being cut. I think Russia will continue to pump as much as it can. But again, you know, if the market is weakening, um, then, you know, the discount is, is getting, I mean, if you look at prices at the moment, the euros would have been trading at roughly above the discount anyway, um, you, were it not for, 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 for the sanctions. And I think there's talk of even more sanctions being applied. I think the, the EU is now in, in a quandary as to what to do next because it hasn't affected it. There's talk of LNG uh, being sanctioned. So I think that's, it may be coming, but I think China will continue to, to buy. But I think you know, if you look at the, the, the Middle Eastern oil is going to South Korea, um, it's, um, you know, Richard, they're not buying Russian oil. So I think it's it's getting to a point where it might get a bit risky. You know, obviously, ESPO is continuing to go in at above the um, the um, the cap. So um, it, it just remains to be seen. I think the, the, the world is too, you know, the, the, the Western governments are, are at the moment too preoccupied with other more pressing issues. I mean, you, you've got the Sudan crisis, you've yeah. got the debt ceiling in the US, you've got, you know, so many other things that are um, taking precedence that uh, that's probably going to have to wait. And in the meantime, you know, the Putin needs, needs to pump out as much as he can. Yeah, and Putin, lucky Putin that the world is distracted from, from the biggest crisis Europe has had in decades. And, and yet the attention, as you said, that is being drawn elsewhere, Sudan being one of those. Uh, Amina, of course, and, and, and the Sudan, we won't get into talking about the conflict too much, but, but uh, two OPEC members, Saudi and the UAE, have been very involved in, in trying to help with the sort of rescue efforts there, et cetera. Uh, uh, but also, uh, let's talk a bit about, uh, in the Gulf, Iran. Um, you know, that's another name, that's another country that doesn't seem to be in the headlines too much these days because there's so much else going on. But where, what's the latest with Iranian production, with the sort of detente that we're seeing build in the Gulf? 
for Iran with the with the Gulf countries and and what prospect does that hold for their production? Let's say by the end of the year, if we see progress on that front, we're not seeing much difference, Diala, like an immediate uh, Iranian uh, production going up or anything like that, or an increase of, of export. But of course, this rapprochement uh, really does help to bring uh, at least the hope of stability for this region. And it's good news uh, generally for other uh, countries such as Iraq, Yemen, et cetera, where we saw a lot of these proxy wars play out. So uh, talks are still ongoing in Yemen, we understand, between the Houthis and the Saudis. There was supposed to be an announcement of a ceasefire around Eid or before Eid. That didn't happen. But we understand that talks are going well and uh, we might hear some good news soon. So uh, that would uh, mean more exports for uh, LNG and, uh, and oil possibly. Out of uh, out of Yemen might take them a little bit of time, but again, that's uh, that's uh, that's the good news. With Iraq, I mean, uh, we saw the huge uh, billion dollar deal from Total. Total re-entering again, and that kind of unlocks uh, a kind of sleeping uh, uh, beast in the region in terms of upstream uh, capacity. So, in the future, that is a promise of more supply at a time where we're seeing very very limited. Uh, spare capacity and the OP and the OPEC members like, continue to warn that uh, spare capacity is thin. There's a need for more investment. We don't want to face a supply crunch. And the moment, I mean, what we're facing today and what Europe is facing today in, in terms of energy uh, security should be really a warning sign that hydrocarbons are are still relevant. They're here to stay for some time. Sure, we need to invest in the transition, but it could happen in parallel. And I think this message is going to be conveyed uh, later in the year by the UAE when we have COP28. Max, uh, talking about spare capacity, you know, there is a lot of it in, in Latin America. Uh, but of course, the usual investment problems, political problems that have dogged that. Give us an update of, of, of the sort of whole US-Venezuela softening, if you like, of sanctions, letting giving Chevron a license. Do we do we expect to see more of that, even from the U.S. point of view, for its energy global energy security, keeping prices in check, etc.? Where where do you see that going? Yeah, that, that, that's a very good question. Um, I think, uh, in light of the the present crisis, I think the U.S. will have to take some steps, you know, securing the, securing uh, a supply. Um, Venezuela is is the the, the obvious candidate for for the that's what the U.S. needs to do, and uh, I think the sanctions are, you know, moving. We're having a bit of interruption there from Max. It's just not just me, right? It's everybody. We'll see if we can get Katrina. We're expecting him to come back. Okay, Max has frozen for me. I'm not sure about everybody else. We'll come back to him. Kate, let me let me go back to you um, again. We, we had some uh, we have one of our bulletins today, which is talking about. I mean, it's a small point, but you know, Pakistan now again talking about sort of China becoming more involved in as, as a mediator. First, we had it helping uh, Saudi and uh, 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 and Iran shake hands, and it's now apparently arranged uh, and brokered the first Russian oil shipment to Pakistan, and Pakistan is negotiating with the IMF and has, has resisted the whole Russian supply of opportunity. Um, you know, are we seeing sort of the, the whole sanctions 
things sort of become very fluid now. I know it's been the intention that, that Russian oil would continue to flow, but in year two, you know, could we see Europe wanting to come in and try and restrict that in any way? Um, I think they've they've tried, you know, they don't want to. So, I mean, let's not forget there is a, a, the market seems to be pretty relaxed, despite the fact that you've got about half a million barrels a day from Iraq and Kurdistan that is not on the market at the moment, and nobody knows when that's going to resume. You've got, uh, you know, the, the, when you had the seizure of this tanker in uh, by Iran, mm. the market didn't really, you know, it hardly moved. So I think it really is all about demand growth at the moment. I think that's where the focus is. I mean, Pakistan is not a huge market, so it doesn't really matter. But, you know, India, China importing near record numbers in, in, in February. I mean, when you look at the, China, the, 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 the India numbers, um, you know, in 2022, I'm just looking at the MIS figures, it was nearly 700,000 barrels a day in 2022 on average. So I think, you know, from, from a very, very low base. So I think the market is shifting, the, ge the geographic trade flows are shifting, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. But I think prices at, at this, you know, when prices are high, you sort of think, okay, it's going to accelerate the, the transition. And I think there is going to be a lot of pressure on at COP28, which is what I'm really focusing on now, sort of in, in, in the months ahead, is um, there's going to be a lot of pressure to actually have wording that says, you know, you've got to phase out and phase down fossil fuels because the EU's already said they're going to phase it out, you know, phase out gas um, out of their energy system. So I think there's going to be a lot of pressure and, and it's, it's almost like, you know, making hay while the sun shines at the moment. So you cut production, you try to lift prices because you know that, you know, it's not a it's it it's not an open ended um, demand curve. You know, and, and no. if you... yeah, and 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 that's I mean, and that's the sort of Gulf defense at the moment of, of of you know, well, we need to make hay well for the next ten years because after that, no, the transition really will have kicked in one way or another, very fully, whether we like it or not. Uh, I mean, I just back to you on on that. Um, uh, in terms of OPEC, its outlook, in terms of its security of demand, if you like. Uh, you know, we have a headline there today uh, on the bulletin saying U.S. oil exports increased. They were up in April. They've been creeping up. Um, does OPEC see U.S. production uh, anymore as, as any sort of threat, if you like, to, to its supply dominance? Obviously, the U.S. production has, has incrementally taken uh, part of that market share. But where's OPEC's point of view, do you think, these days on, on where that's going? I don't see the threat. I mean, we remember uh, during the time of Naomi, maybe that was more of a of an issue having uh, shale producers kind of dominate the market, etc. But I'm not getting a sense that there's a, um, any kind of um, a sense of threat from uh, uh, the current oil producers. On the contrary, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they, they keep saying that we encourage more uh, players to enter the upstream, increase um, the, their production, because they're fighting against the trend of uh, a sped up transition. And they want to really make the point that uh, more upstream uh, capacity is needed uh, and oil will remain uh, relevant for, for the longest uh, time possible. It's a, it's a matter of uh, survival here at DLS. So I, I don't see them being threatened at all by uh, any increase from, uh, from, uh, from shale producers. Okay, Max, do we have you back? Are you, have you rejoined us? 
I'm, I'm here, sorry. Okay, sorry. yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, we, we, no, and just carry on. I mean, we were talking about uh, sort of uh, the, the loose thing, potential further loose thing of sanctions on countries like Venezuela by the US. Right. Right. Uh, and whether we should expect to see more of that this year, do you think, given the US interest in, in, in keeping supply healthy, if you like? Globally. Oh right, right. Yeah, but going back to my point, I think the U.S. needs to secure supply, and I think the, the obvious candidate is Venezuela. And we are seeing a lot of uh, little indications that uh, something is going on in, in between the U.S.-Venezuela relationship. Uh, Venezuela has a, a formidable number of uh, reserves. You know, they they claim they had three three hundred billion barrels. You know, of reserves. You know, uh, out of the three hundred, you know, sixty are conventional, and then. We have the rest with heavy oil, but still is a, a very large number. Uh, so the U.S. needs to to think, uh, you know, closely how it's going to manage, you know, the, the supply side of ends in light of the, the, the present crisis with uh, Russia and Ukraine and all that. So uh, first we saw the uh, the Chevron deal, you know, they basically allowed Chevron to to do some some work uh, and to start uh, establishing themselves back in Venezuela. Then we saw the deal with uh, Trinidad and Tobago, you know, Shell backing up the, the deal with uh, Trinidad and Tobago is is a, is a gas deal, you know, it's, a, it's an offshore field uh, to supply the, the Trinidadian uh, LNG plants. Still, you know, I think that's another indication. Then we saw the removal of the oil minister, Mr. Tarek, you know, he, he's gone. And... Then we saw uh, some movements, you know, against some uh, corruption inside uh, PDVSA and other oil and gas organizations. So I think slowly we are start, starting to see uh, some improvements in, in the relationships. And hopefully, you know, that trend is going to continue uh, and, and the U.S. is going to start lifting sanctions. And probably, you know, maybe Venezuela is going to, is going to be a player again in, in the Latin America and the world, you know, oil and gas industry. And what about the transition? We just had that mentioned. Uh, and so let's just look at that survey before I go to you. Okay, what's weighing more on oil market sentiment? Uh, the US banking crisis, US debt, or Asian demand? Okay, we kind of began to talk about that at the beginning. So which of those two is weighing more at the moment? Is it the demand story and primarily coming out of Asia? Uh, or, or, or is it is it the sort of debt financial concerns, which which seem to be you know, obviously a big headline, but again on the economic front, not having too much uh, impact yet, at least in the U.S. economy. Sorry, Max, just to go back to you and just to continue on, let's talk a bit about the energy transition in in, uh, in Latin America, the policies there uh, towards that. I mean, Latin America is sort of desperate for an investment in upstream FDI in that. And it is pursuing, in parallel, a, a transition uh, agenda. Uh, can it do both? Oh, he's frozen again. Okay. Sorry about that, everybody. I'm not quite sure our connection from that. Kate, on your on that on that survey question that we just had uh, up there, on I know we've talked about Chinese demand this morning and, and the banking crisis, but which of those two do you think? I mean, it is weighing more uh, on on the sort of macro sentiment of of how everything commodities will be impacted, etc. I would like to say both, um, but I think um, it's yeah, it's probably more to do at the moment with Asian demand um, because the U.S. banking crisis. I mean, if you read the analyses, you know, it's it's 
it's contained. It's not. Uh, it's not expected to hit the bigger banks, as we were talking earlier. You know, the banks are are, um, are showing good profits. We just had BP. So um, you know, uh, and to go back to your China uh, question, I think Chinese policy is changing. You know, you've seen them more sort of mediating between Saudi Arabia and Iran, becoming more involved in diplomacy in the region, which. You know, I mean, a few weeks ago we were on this podcast and somebody was saying, oh, China doesn't care so long as the oil from the Middle East keeps flowing. I don't think that that's true anymore. I think Chinese policy is shifting. I think they are becoming more involved. Um, you know, there are other reports that uh, haven't been confirmed yet, but showing that China is actually more involved in sort of security um, arrangements, both because if you're relying on the Middle East for for, for and Russia, uh, for your oil, you really, and you're a maritime, you're mainly a maritime importer, you really need to secure your, um, you know, your, your import routes. So I think that's, um, that's quite something to think about. But as for the transition, I mean, if you look at the numbers, it's actually quite frightening. If you look at the Middle East, uh, IRENA um, statistics, the Middle East accounts for just 1% of renewable energy capacity and power generation, which is, you know, so it really has to be scaled up uh, if you're going to reach these net zero targets by 2060. So it's um, it, it's going to be a, an, an uphill climb. You know, Africa, if you add Africa, that's got Egypt and Morocco, that's about, and South Africa, that's about 2% of global capacity. And of course, you know, there's the issue of funding. So you really need, and, and, and Amina mentioned the Total deal in, um, in, in Iraq. I mean, that's a sort of hybrid deal where you're going to be producing oil, you're going to be producing gas, capturing the gas, creating a hub so you stop flaring, and then um, building a solar power plant. So that's probably where, you know, where future, uh, because you're not going to get funding if you don't have a sort of net zero um, policy in your portfolio. So. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just on that point of, 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 of the net zero sort of policy and, and you know, we mentioned COP28 being hosted in the Gulf this year. Uh, and of course, a lot of headlines came out about that. How can an oil gas hub, you know, host uh, COP28? But of course, there's a, there's a double advantage there, possibly. Uh, and Kate was saying it's going to be an implementation COP this time, to be. Do you think that's going to happen, given that it's it's being hosted by the UAE? Uh, and how is the, how are these Gulf producers sort of managing that balance and, and spotlight on them of, of, of obviously, you know, ramping up that percentage of renewable energy that Kate just mentioned in the Gulf? A first step, Diala, that they did is setting net zero targets, which we've never seen before. I mean, each of these um, Gulf states announced a net zero target for the UAE's 2050, for Saudi Arabia's 2060, for uh, state oil companies such as Aramco, they set a 2050 target. And uh, of course, they're going to, uh, it's a, as Kate mentioned, it's an uphill battle to increase that percentage. But um, I also see on the ground, just being here in the UAE, traveling to Saudi Arabia a lot and the rest of the Gulf, there are steps being taken. I'm seeing projects actually uh, start uh, getting implemented. The funding is happening. It's an issue of communication, too. And I think when uh, a lot of uh, the delegations from Europe actually come to the UAE and are, are allowed to see the programs that are in place, what's actually happening, etc., maybe there'll be a closer understanding that it is going into 
into that direction. And it's not just greenwashing. Um, there is a serious intention from these Gulf states. I mean, and they're the ones with the money, really. You need funding to, exactly. to, to transition. And they're seeing it as an energy addition, not just a transition. Uh, so maybe just bridging that communication gap, having people come here to the Gulf, see that for themselves, uh, that would, uh, would help the argument. Yeah, as you said, it's all about the finance and certainly that there, there is money in, in the Gulf. And, and that's why they are afforded, they're being able to afford sort of these parallel tracks themselves, but of course, a lot, not enough money going into into traditional uh, EMP, conventional EMP is, is is one big complaint, obviously, of conventional producers. Max, we'll go to you one more time to close up for us today. Sorry if you're again. back with Sorry us, I'll give you the last word. It's okay, but you were talking about the transition in Latin America, so let's stick yes. to that theme and get your thoughts on that. Yes, uh, you know, Latin America is, is, is a unique, uh, you know, scenario, situation with the transition. Uh, Latin America already has, you know, step up uh, the, the uh, renewable uh, nuclear, you know, hydroelectric power. I mean, the uh, energy metric in Latin America is about uh, 35% compared to the global, you know, uh, renewable uh, nuclear hydroelectric, which is 18%. So I think Latin America is ahead of, of the world on the on the transition. And on the other hand, I think the emissions on Latin America is only 4% of the world. So uh, my personal view is that uh, the Latin America has another different, you know, agenda pressing matters like poverty, like uh, monetizing the resources than transition. Nevertheless, some of the larger companies, you know, Ecopetrol, Petrobras, they have committed themselves, you know, uh, you know, to the transition and to reducing emissions and uh, uh, not not to a net zero, but uh, but something, you know, uh, compromising the the uh, and, and trying to 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 uh, lower their emissions and and decarbonizing the the industry. Um, but again, I think the transition Latin America is a, probably a different thing, a different agenda, different situation than the rest of the world. Uh, so I think um, we're going to see a, a, a different uh, dynamic in Latin America than the rest of the world when we talk about uh, you know, transition and, and, and renewables. OK, thanks very much, Max. Max Torres, Kate Durian, and Amina Bakker. Thank you. And we didn't mention Europe today, but of course, that has its own transition agenda as well. And, and it's arguably ahead uh, in, in many ways, some people would argue. Uh, but thanks so much for joining us, everyone. We saw that the result of that survey, which is a bit surprising to me, which is that the banking debt, banking crisis uh, argument seemed to be weighing heavier, at least on those who, who voted on the poll so far, 62%. I would have thought it would have been Asian demand, but uh, there you go. Uh, public opinion, every vote counts. So thanks so much, everyone, for joining us today uh, uh, and have a great week.